June 30th, 1935. Dear Evelyn, your continued interest in our effort to tie a knot in the end of the rope and hang on is most stimulating. Our recent transition from rain-soaked eastern Kansas with its green pastures, luxuriant foliage, abundance of flowers, and promise of a generous harvest to the dust-covered desolation of no man's land was a difficult change to crowd into one short day travel. Wearing our shade hats with handkerchiefs tied over our faces and Vaseline in our nostrils, we have been trying to rescue our home from the accumulations of wind-blown dust which penetrates wherever air can go. It is an almost hopeless task, for there is rarely a day when at some point the dust clouds do not roll over. Visibility approaches zero, and everything is covered again with a silt-like deposit, which may vary in depth from a film to actual ripples on the kitchen floor. I keep oiled cloths on the windowsills and between the upper and lower sashes. They help just a little to slow or collect the dust. Some seal the windows with the gummed paper strips used in wrapping parcels, but no method is fully effective. We buy what appears to be red cedar sawdust with oil added to use in sweeping our floors and do our best to avoid inhaling the irritating dust. In telling you of these conditions, I realize that I expose myself to charges of disloyalty to this western region. A good Kansas friend suggests that we should imitate the Californian attitude toward earthquakes and keep to ourselves what we know about dust storms. Since the very limited rains of May in this section gave some slight ground for renewed hope, optimism has been the approved policy. Printed articles or statements by journalists, railroad officials, and secretaries of small-town chambers of commerce have heralded too enthusiastically the return of prosperity to the drought region. And in our part of the country, that is the one durable basis for any prosperity whatever. There is nothing else to build upon. But you wish to know the truth, so I am telling you the actual situation, though I freely admit that the facts are themselves often contradictory and confusing. This is the beginning of one of several letters written by Mrs. Caroline A. Henderson, to a friend in Maryland in what would later be remembered as the Dust Bowl. As the demand for wheat increased coming out of World War I, farmers looked for a way to keep up with demand and they plowed millions of acres of, of farmland and grasslands in the Plains state of the US. But as the Depression hit, and wheat prices plummeted, farmers anxiously fought to plant more and more and, and harvest a bumper crop so that they could break even. And in their wake, they left bare, overplowed farmland. And soon, with nothing to hold the soil in place because all the grasses had been plowed up to plant over, the soil began to blow away, leading to crop failure and then massive dust storms, 
and the disparity that we read about in Caroline's letters like this. She writes to her friend Evelyn about missing a patch of of shaded green trees that her and her family used to enjoy for years before the Dust Bowl, noting that it had become nothing more than a small pile of fence posts. She laments the loss of gardens and little chickens and trees and birds and wildflowers of years gone by, replaced now with darkness and dust and loneliness as more and more of her neighbors left. But when her friend Evelyn asked, why don't you just leave? Carolyn replied that the thought of leaving their sweet homestead of 27 years was even more unbearable than staying. So they carried on, though in another letter she wrote, I fear we will be horrified and discouraged by the close of the year. See, as bad as the physical conditions of the Dust Bowl were, the mental and emotional conditions weren't that much better. Carolyn writes in another letter to Evelyn in March of the following year, since I wrote to you, we have had several bad days of wind and dust. On the worst one recently, old sheets stretched over door and window openings and sprayed with kerosene quickly became black and helped a little to keep down the irritating dust in our living rooms. Nothing that you see or hear or read will likely be to exaggerate the physical discomfort or material loss due to these storms. Less emphasis is usually given to the mental effect, the confusion of mind resulting from the overthrow of all plans for improvement or normal farm work and the difficulty of making other plans even in a tentative way. To give just one specific example, the paint has been literally scoured from our buildings by the storms of this and previous years. We should by all means try to save the surface But who knows when we might safely undertake such a project? The pleasantest morning may be a prelude to an afternoon when the dust devils all unite in one hideous onslaught. The combination of fresh paint with a real dust storm is not pleasing to contemplate. And so having stories like like Caroline's etched into our minds, into our American history, it's not too far a stretch to understand the story of another woman who found herself in the middle of a drought. Only she had lost arguably more even than Caroline. She lost the love of her life. She was a widow. And with that loss, probably her livelihood, he was her source of provision. And when we meet her, when we find her story, the loss of her life seems to be just around the corner, too. Her story is found in the book of 1 Kings in the Bible, chapter 17. If you have your Bibles with you and want to turn there, we'll be in chapter 17 of 1 Kings. Now, we don't know her name, she's simply referred to as the widow of Zarephath. Zarephath is a city where she lived. And she has an encounter with a prophet named Elijah, who makes an inconvenient and maybe even inconsiderate request of her, especially, as we'll read, given her circumstances. And yet, through this request, we get a glimpse of the way God provides. But I don't want to ruin the story. 
So we'll start at the beginning. We'll take a look at it. Now, as if you're turning there to chapter 17, a little bit of backstory. Elijah, the prophet, has been hiding out in the wilderness because he actually called down the drought. And so he's hiding in the wilderness for obvious reasons. People aren't too fond of him right now. And God has been providing him food and water at a brook. But if you take a look at chapter 17, starting in verse 7, after a while, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere in the land. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Elijah, go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath. As he arrived at the gates of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread, too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. And I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal, and then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. I mean, imagine being in this poor woman's shoes. Surely she saw this day coming, the day that she would be preparing her last meal. She probably rationed the portions for as long as she could, and meals got a little smaller bit by bit, just a little bit so you couldn't really notice. And then they cut from maybe two meals a day down to one meal a day. Tried to kind of stretch out the food, the provisions a little bit longer. Maybe she cut her portion earlier than her son's, figured, you know, I'll spare him an empty belly for one more night because that's what a mother would do. But pretty soon, even that wasn't enough. And when she meets Elijah here at the gates of the village, she's resigned herself to her fate. She's picking up sticks to make a fire. Because if it's our last meal, I can at least have the decency to make sure it's a hot one. No one can say that I didn't do my best till the very end. And I picture Elijah meeting this woman by the gate, her worn-out body bending down to get sticks, her face aged beyond her true age by hunger and worry. And I imagine looking into her face and seeing any ounce of hope drained from her countenance as she looks up. Excuse me, miss. Can I have a cup of water? Please. She may have lost her hope and her joy, but not her decency to help another human being. And so she turns to get this stranger a, a cup of water, and as she goes, she hears in the back, and a bite of bread, too. As if it was 
no small thing. A bite of, a bite of bread. Didn't he, didn't he realize what he was asking? I mean, you can almost feel the bitterness bubbling up in her, a weight and a sorrow, and, and maybe, maybe like she's holding back tears and swallowing her pride in her response as she says, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread, only a handful of flour, a little bit of oil, and I'm gathering these sticks so that I can make my last meal for myself and my son and we're going to eat and then we're going to die. And then he says, well, okay, do that, but make me a little bit first. I mean, picture being this woman. First? You want me to feed you first, before my own flesh and blood, before, before my child, I don't know you from Adam, and you would have me feed you first from the last of what I have. Water is in scarce supply, it's a drought, but bread, that is too much, sir. I have nothing. See, this, to this woman, Elijah's request must have seemed beyond inconvenient. It was inconsiderate at best, easily impossible, and for any reasonable person, we could look at her story and say, that's too much to ask. And I wonder if not unlike that woman, you found yourself standing in her shoes, defeated, tired, resigned, drained of hope and joy, and walking through life, resigned to accept whatever life has thrown your way. Or maybe, like Caroline in that letter, you find yourself mourning the loss of a fruitful past, of greener pastures and, and sunny days of yesteryear. And you've wondered, is there any hope of better days? Because that's life, isn't it? likes to beat you up when you're already down, it, when it rains, it pours, and at some point you reach your breaking point and, and one last ask where you say, okay, that's enough. That's too much. I have nothing left to give. I am completely and utterly spent. Elijah was instructed to, by God to ask this woman for food, but to the woman, this was too much and besides that, how did she know what he was saying was true? Because listen to this, picking up back in 13. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. Now this is a nice thought in theory, but how does she know? How does she know that this stranger was telling the truth? How does she know that if she says, okay, I'll get you the water, I'll get you the bread, how does she know that she won't just make the last batch of bread and give it to him, feed him first, and then nothing happens? How does she know that's not gonna happen? 
Because then she is left not only with nothing, but then she's left also having to go to her son and explain why she fed this stranger and not her son. She didn't know what was going to happen. Elijah's faith and trust in God was tested when God told him to go to Zarephath and to look for a widow who would feed him. That was a test of trust for Elijah. But the widow's faith and trust was tested when she had to determine if this stranger was not only worth the last bits that she had, but was also worth trusting. And that his God would truly provide and that he could. See, she's not even sure about Elijah's God. Did you catch that? In her initial response to Elijah, she said, I swear by the Lord, your God, that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. She doesn't accept that God as her God. She doesn't know Elijah's God, the God of Israel. He's your God, not mine. How do I know that he's faithful to his word? How do I know that you are faithful to your word? You're asking me to trust not only you, but the power and provision of your God. That is a tall order, sir. And any one of us in her shoes would agree. See, I can stand up here and tell you that I know that my God is faithful. And I know that my God provides because I've heard your stories. And I've seen him provide again and again. But you may have been put through the ringer already and one more ask to trust or to have faith feels like too much to ask. And asking you to trust in God's provision feels inconvenient and inconsiderate at best. Or maybe it's not even me standing up here asking you to trust. Maybe God has been asking you to do something and you've said that's too much, God. Don't you know that's my last bits? How do I know my faith and obedience won't be wasted? I'm tired and I, I, I don't even know for sure if you can be trusted or not. God, what you're asking me to do or to give or to say is too much. This woman, this widow who'd been drained of any hope of a future found herself in that same position, yet. Don't you love yet? Yet, verse 15. So she did as Elijah said. And she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. Though There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. Just as the Lord had promised. See, God keeps his promises. And he is able to provide. And when he asks us to trust, when he asks us to obey, it will not be wasted. He is faithful to provide not only what we need, but more than we need. 
See, for this woman, he provided what she needed, flour and oil. That's what she needed to make bread, to live, to eat, to feed her and her family. But God also provided more than that. He provided what she needed, but he also provided what she needed. Some of you are saying, Jessica, that's the same word. That's a little redundant. Let me explain. This woman needed food. Her stomach was empty. Her shelves were empty. But I think the effects of this drought and the decisions that it likely drove her to make left her hope and her joy empty too. She needed a restoration of her hope and her joy. I mean, you can hear it in the way that she answers Elijah. There's this sense of of resignation, of hopelessness. I'm going to make this meal, we're going to eat it, and we're going to die. Those aren't the words of a hope-filled woman. And whether we like to admit it or not, when we find ourselves in need, it has a way of drying up our hope and sapping our joy. And I know the Bible says in the book of James that our, our joy should not be circumstantial. In fact, it says, when troubles come, consider it an opportunity for great joy. But if we're honest, that's a hard thing to put into practice. To choose joy when you aren't sure where your next meal will come from. To have hope when you aren't sure how you're going to pay the bills. To have joy in the midst of loss and uncertainty and sorrow. But if God is able to provide oil and flour, isn't he able to provide hope? To restore joy, to to restock the shelves of our hearts with the things that the hardships of life have drained us of? Isn't he able? You know, flour. It's pretty basic. It's a staple. You, you need flour. It goes into bread and all sorts of basic foods. It's nothing fancy. It's able to sustain us in our hunger. But oil, it's necessary as well. But it's a little bit more multifaceted. In the Bible, oil was used for cooking, like we see in this story, but it was also used for light. They'd put it in a lamp and burn it to light the home or to light a path. It was used as an ointment for wounds. It was used to anoint God's people, his priests, to signify his blessing on their lives. In the book of Psalms, we read about the oil of joy poured out on God's people. And I know this story is about God providing for this woman's physical needs and providing food for Elijah, what they needed. But I know God provided even more than what they needed. He provided what they needed. And I can't help but wonder that if in providing for one, he didn't also provide for the other. He provided flour and he provided oil. He is the God who provides what we need physically, 
but also emotionally, mentally, relationally, spiritually. He can provide a, a restoration of light and joy in our homes and guide us back to his path for our lives. He can provide healing for our wounds, not just of the body, but of the heart and the mind. God can provide blessing and hope, not just for today, but for eternity. Because guess what? More than all of these things, he already provided salvation. A chance to, to know him and to live with him. Because more than anything else, he knows that's what we truly need. The God of the Bible is the God who provides. This morning, I think there's probably a few of us who are in need, probably in more ways than one. And I, I don't want to overlook or, or turn a blind eye to the sting of physical need of food and health and shelter, but underneath those things are other things. Sorrow, hopelessness, anger, bitterness, anxiety, things that may have taken up root in your heart as a result of your circumstances, of carrying a heavy burden for a long time, of seeing a loved one suffer, of living through a season of drought. And so this morning, I wanna extend an invitation. The worship team's gonna play through a song. It, it may not be super familiar to you, and that's okay, because I want you to just listen to the words. You can sing it, you can reflect on the words, but if you're someone who's living in the midst of a drought right now, a season of need, and you found yourself dried up of hope and joy, I wanna invite you to come up to the front and be anointed with oil. This isn't anything weird or mystical, it's a symbol. We do this a lot when someone says, hey, I wanna be healed and I'd like you to just anoint me with oil, touch my head with oil and pray over me. But today it's a way of saying, Lord, I am tired, I'm heavy, and I need hope and joy, and I know that you are able to provide and restore that in my life. And here's the thing, just like that woman, she didn't know God. You don't have to know God to come forward. If you don't, I would love to introduce you to him. But this isn't an invitation for, for just those who are Christians or, or for people who don't know God. This is an invitation to open to anyone. We just wanna pray over you, touch your head with oil and ask God who is faithful to provide. To provide all things. To provide you with hope and with the joy that you need to face the drought that you're in. Now here's the other thing. If, if you're someone saying, I'm actually good. I'm in a really good spot in life. That's wonderful. Praise God for that. Thank God for that. In fact, I wanna invite you, maybe you come up to the altar because this isn't just a place where we pray and we confess and we plead with God. This is a place where you can thank God. You can praise him for who he is and how he has provided for you. And so if you're doing great, praise him, thank him, come to the front and say, thank you, Lord, for the ways that you provided for me. But if you're not, and if you're someone who's found themselves in the drought, 
whose heart is dry of hope and of joy, then we want to invite you to come to the front so we can pray over you to restore your hope and your joy. So at this time, I have a couple people who are going to come up to help anoint you if you would like to. No pressure. We just want to pray with you, pray over you. But I want to invite you to stand, listen to these words, sing these words if you know them, as we invite God to meet with us in our times of drought. Come and respond as you feel led here.